0: Good morning and happy Easter! Today we celebrate the death burial and resurrection of Jesus, the single most important event in all of human history and the moment that gave us the right to become a people, the people of God. A few weeks ago we started a series called A People Becoming where we've walked week by week towards this blessed event where we celebrate that the tomb is empty and that sin is defeated by Jesus alone. Last week we started a two-part sermon to end the entire series where well, we looked at the heinous trial of Jesus prior to the cross and His composure through it all as Jesus literally took it all. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus understood that in a broken world that needed redeeming, He would, be, he would have to be willing to give His all. And He did for you and for me. There's a Hebrew word that shows up at this time every year in the Jewish festival of Passover. That word is dihenu. Dihenu means... That it would have been enough. Jews practice using this word in the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as they remember the plagues of the Exodus and events such as the Red Sea. On their dinner plate before them, they flick red wine over the plate and recite each plague. During the during the celebration of this feast, there's four cups of wine, and they dip their finger in the second second cup, and they literally, as they recite each plague, flick drops of blood onto their plate they'll say blood frogs lice flies as they remember all 10 plagues because these people understood from the law that sacrifice required blood be shed for the atoning of sin and when they are finished what they find is an entirely like appearing blood-stained plate to remind them that blood must be shed to atone for sin it's only a few moments later that they recite this word, dihenu, and they sing it in a hymn of praise. It's preceded by the leader asking them a few questions, really stating a few realities. He states moments that happened from the coming out of Egypt through the wilderness. He'll say, if if only God had released us from the Egyptians, and the people all cried, dihenu. If only he had parted the Red Sea and not swallowed up our enemies, they'll cry, Dihenu. If he had only provided manna in the wilderness, they cry, Dihenu. And what they're trying to establish is if God had only done one of the plagues or one of the miraculous events surrounding the Exodus, it would have been enough for them to worship him entirely that He would have been worthy of their entire praise. But because He's a loving God who loves His people, and in kindness and generosity, He doesn't perform one of them. He performs all these miracles. They remember Him. Many evangelicals uh, in history, such as St. Aquinas, all the way to contemporary theologians like Al Mohler, have said something similar. They've been accredited as saying, Jesus, if He had just spilled one drop of His perfect and untainted blood, it would have been enough to cover the entire world's sin. But we know from the gospel's record that He didn't stop at one drop. In fact, Jesus spilt it all. He spilt every ounce of His blood because Jesus was willing to give it all for you and for me. The truth of the gospel is, we're, we're going to walk through right now as we pick up right where we left off that God loved you so much that he gave himself and he withheld nothing. In Mark 15:15, 15, 15, we read, Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together a whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe upon him twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit at him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. You have to have this picture in your mind. You have to imagine a head and face swollen from beating profusely and repeatedly with a false scepter. You have to imagine a lacerated back, bloodied and profusely bleeding from the flogging of these soldiers upon Jesus. You have to imagine the entire picture being this comedic, seemingly picture of parody, where they jokingly ascribe worship to the one true king in mockery. And that is actually the key to our first point. Jesus took all our mockery. In fact, it's the single distinguishing difference between Jesus' crucifixion and scourging and all the tens of thousands that had come before him. His involved this heinous mockery that none before had because Pilate, it begins with him. First, there's Pilate who found Jesus innocent repeatedly and tried to wash his hands the entire practice. Anyone who had been crucified before was guilty, but this man, Jesus, was innocent, and Pilate knew it. He tried to keep from condemning him, but the Sanhedrin wouldn't have it. And if you know anything about history, Pilate had a a sordid past with the Jews. He had offended them repeatedly and uh, he really didn't and couldn't afford one more scandal on his record. So the Sanhedrin blackmail him. They actually back him into a corner and they tell him, look, if you don't kill him, we're going to appeal to Caesar. And in an effort to uh, kind of save his own skin, Pilate willingly hands Jesus over knowing that he's innocent because he can't afford for Caesar to look at him and have his post removed by Rome. He doesn't want to lose power, so he willingly gives Jesus up even though he's innocent and he lets the mockery ensue. It says that Mark records the entire guard assembled. The whole company of soldiers, meaning 600 men, were present. This point may only be important to clarify because Jesus came to die for the whole world, it says in John 3.16. Mark accentuates that there wasn't one guard missing. That the whole assembly was present. There is no distinction made between who personally mocked him and who didn't. It simply says they. As to say that every one of them was responsible and every one had a part to play. That mocking was the real distinction between Jesus' crucifixion and all those that came before him. From the dressing of him, to the crowning, to the falsely proclaiming him as king, to the beating and spitting upon him... All these actions served to fulfill the scriptures and the prophecies that were told about him. From Jesus proclaiming this to his own disciples in Mark 10, 33 and 34 about himself, or from Jewish history proclaiming it from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 50, they all would have known that the things that were said about the coming Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus. And even in this moment right here, they all mocked him and Jesus took it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This verse isn't just specific to this day in the praetorium, but was written well after that day and ascribes the mockery of Jesus, happened well before that day, and it continues today, well after that day in the praetorium. As people today continue to mock Jesus with their lives, living as if they themselves are kings, robbing Jesus of true and due praise. Romans 3.23 isn't personally specific either, but says all have sinned. That excludes no one and in fact includes everyone. Everyone before us and everyone that will come after. That's you, that's me. Because we were all tainted with sin, born into a broken world that only knows to think of self and to worship self. Doing what we want when we want, ascribing homage only to ourselves, seeking our own desire and pursuits, having agendas each of us. When asked in the Gospels, in Matthew, about the first and second greatest commandments, Jesus says to the Pharisees that we are to, first commandment, love him with all that we are and then love others just like he did. This literally has nothing to do with ourselves. In fact, those commandments require the denial of ourselves if we're truly going to live them. And that's the point. Our lives today... Our lives being focused on our own way and our own agendas literally mocks Jesus continually. When we focus only on ourselves, we continue, just like they did that day in the praetorium, to mock Jesus. Reading on in Mark 15, verse 21, we see it says, A certain man of Cyrene, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine with, mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see that which, uh, what, what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of charge against him was, "...the king of the Jews." They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. It's our next point. Jesus took all our sin. Simon of serene is mentioned here briefly as having carried the cross of Jesus. Seemingly random, but it's not. When you understand that God is sovereign and the sovereign hand of the Father is the one who leads to salvation, you see Simon in this picture. It is so that we will all understand the weight and magnitude of the cross that Jesus bore. So, so Simon is selected to carry that weight. And it was when he did that he recognized it was his sin that put Jesus on this very cross. It was this very weight that convicts Simon to become a follower of Jesus and leads his wife and children to do the same as their names are listed among the church in Acts 16. It lists him here as the father of Alexander and Rufus, understanding that John Mark wrote his gospel to a Gentile audience, to a Gentile church who had converted to follow Jesus. And so we understand that Simon of Cyrene was someone who became a follower of Jesus and led not only his wife but his kids to worship Jesus as well. So what seemingly looked random shows up as a really important picture here because it led to a man's conversion. It was 9 a.m. as the mockery continued, and so much so that they hung him next to two common thieves, those who were likely a part of Barabbas' uh, band during the insurrection. Yet instead of Barabbas, their leader, hanging next to them, paying for what he had earned, Jesus is hanging to die alongside these guilty men. Luke 22 records the entire picture more colorfully. But the irony of this entire picture is the innocence of Jesus. And remember who was released when Pilate tried to release Jesus. Barabbas was, like we discussed last week. Jesus, in his final moments and his eventual death, were spent amongst those who were most guilty in history, like he was one of them. The cross was equivalent in, in their day to our day, the electric chair or lethal injection, the most severe of death penalties. The thieves represent us in this picture as well. Some will hang with him, crucify their flesh, repent, and turn to him like the one desiring paradise, while others will hang beside him. Deny His love, continue mocking Him in their sin like the other. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God was eternal life through His Son, Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 says it like this, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one meteor between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus hung there innocently next to thieves. Reading on in Mark 15, 33, 34, moving to 37 and 39, it says at noon, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Jesus, third point, gave His all. The thing that led Jesus to sweat drops of blood in the garden had become reality. As the bearer of global sin, He'd have to accept the rejection and separation from the Father in this moment just to redeem mankind. He'd be the sole recipient of the Father's divine wrath against the world's sin, against your sin, and against mine. He took it all, and listen clearly, so that you and I wouldn't have to. Our high priest, he became our mediator and forever abolished a need for further intercession by any other priest, and the torn veil is sign of that reality. As our Passover lamb, he died that day at the exact time that the law required, 3 p.m., that the Passover lamb be slain as a sacrifice for the Jewish festival and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would have been celebrated that Friday that he died. You see, the majority of Israel was no longer present at his death. They had already turned to their homes because they were going to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and at 3 p.m. they were going to slain their lamb for the celebration of said feast, the celebration of Passover. We know that Jesus has been called the Lamb of God or the Passover Lamb of God. And it is no coincidence that he died and breathed his last at 3 p.m. at the lawful requirement, an exact time that most of Israel was killing their Passover lamb so they could celebrate as a family. That's why it says that darkness over, fell over all the land so that no one could deny and all would know that one final sacrifice for eternal sin had happened because they were all in their homes killing those chosen lambs of sacrifice at the feast of Passover, at the same time darkness fell. It was such a powerful picture, so undeniable that the centurion guard who couldn't help himself from exclaiming, surely this man was the son of of God. John 19 records it like this. It says, But when they came to Jesus and found that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it was had given testimony, and his testimony was true. He knows and tells the truth, and he testifies, speaking of that centurion guard, so that you may also believe. These things happen so the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says they will look upon the one they have pierced. After proclaiming it is finished in John 19.30, Jesus gave up his spirit, it says, and he died. Upon checking, those hanging with him, to quicken the death process, because in crucifixion, you actually die by suffocation, the guards would break the legs of those who were still living on the crosses to suffocate their, them to death and quicken the process so they could no longer lift themselves up, bringing the lugs above the ribcage. They would be squashed by the ribcage. When they came to Jesus, they noticed that He was already dead. To ensure His death pronounced they drained all the blood and water from His, from his body by piercing His side, ripping holes into His heart and His lungs. The religious leaders who wanted him dead and would receive nothing else wanted certainty, and they were sparing no expense to end him. This was a master executionist, the centurion guard, who gives this proclamation that surely this was the Son of God. He was overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus, and he, his testimony is rock solid. So he not only is certain, but pronounces it with authority. He, Jesus was dead. His side pierced. And his pronouncement of dead and his testimony were rock solid, which no one in this day would have refuted. Because the man performing the act, this was his very specialty. He did this so that all, even you, and I, might know for certain that the the that which was required in prophecy and that was required on this moment would be fulfilled. The, this fulfilled the requirement of God and all that was qu- required in history by prophesied Scripture. John three sixteen says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life." Romans five six and eight says it like this: You see that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember that that right time He was executed as the Passover lamb at 3 p.m. This was all under God's sovereign plan. Nothing about this is off. Nothing is random. It's all intentional. So at the right time, they were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's for you and that's for me. Why? Because, fourth point, Jesus renews it all. Mark 15:42 says it was the day of preparation That is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother Joseph saw where he was laid. It's ironic that Joseph, here a member of the very Sanhedrin that indicted and sentenced him uh, just before the night before, from last week's sermon, one of the seventy-one, if he was present that night at Caiaphas' house uh, or not. Some some speculate that he wasn't there and didn't actually go through the indictment because he was a follower of Jesus. Either way, we know that at some point his heart turned and he follows Jesus, and this is a sign of it, that he doesn't stand with his Sanhedrin brothers in, in crucifying Jesus any longer. He wants to follow Jesus. And it's ironic that that night, when, when the trial that we looked at last week was completely illegitimate and never been practiced like this before, that not one of the 71 present of the great Sanhedrin st- stood up, spoke up, and said, hey, this is wrong. We've never conducted business like this. This is why this event around Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection stands alone in history. And it had to so that it could (laughs) redeem all of us. It says that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, waited for the kingdom of God upon his request for the burial and to prepare the body for burial of Jesus. It shows that he himself had a change of heart. You heard it earlier in this service, the testimony of my friend Toy. He physically needed a new heart. His old one was damaged and it was decaying. It was literally killing him. And the only way for him to live was to receive a transplant of a physical heart. He needed a new heart. And it says that the doctors, uh, their testimony was that the heart they gave him was like a Ferrari. You know, it says in John 10 that Jesus came that we would have life and have life more abundant. If you were to ask Toy, he would say that it's not just about my physical heart. It's about the spiritual heart. Because here's the truth. You and I worshiping ourselves only exposes that we have a heart, a spiritual heart that is decaying and dying. And it's a part of this world and it's temporal. It will end. Death was never intended in God's original picture, but it became the curse for sin and self-worship. And so, like it said in in Romans 6.23, that the wage of sin is death, that's spiritual death. Anyone who does not exchange their old heart for the new heart that's available in Jesus spiritually, who trusts on the sacrifice of Jesus and repents of their old ways to worship Him alone, will die in that sin. But Jesus didn't come that we would die. He came that we might live. And He came that we might have that new heart and we might experience life, life abundant. He doesn't expect us to continue worshiping ourselves and at the end find ourselves miserable. He came that we might have life and have it abundant. It says in Mark 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were there on their way home, from the, uh, on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone? from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up and saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away, they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. He said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is written, for it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, it is with the mouth that we profess faith and are saved. It is with the heart that you believe and trust, with the mouth that you testify and are justified. See, it's a conscious decision to exchange your bad heart for a new one, like like my friend, toy needed a new physical heart but he would say more importantly he exchanged his old spiritual heart for a new one years ago and he would want the same for you and for me it's to turn from the one from it's from to turn from the one that only seeks your own way and puts lordship of jesus to death and instead accepts the free gift of unconditional love and eternal life in him alone and instead decides to give up the fight for yourself and to submit to him As Lord and Savior and accept the fight that he already won for you on the cross. Today Jesus gave it all so that you wouldn't have to. And that's what Easter really is. It's what it truly is about. You and I receiving a new heart because Jesus took our sin and punishment upon himself in order to give us life. And to have us for his own. To make us his people. John 15 says there is no greater act of love than this, what Jesus did for us. He willingly gave himself up for you and for me. All we have to do is trust that. Trust him and accept this gift by turning from our old ways unto him. Friend, you can do that literally right now in the sanctity of your own uh, living room and, and privacy, you can turn to him and you can do it by praying this way with me. Maybe you're sitting here and you're hearing all this and you didn't know that you were this loved. If that is true and you look at your life and you go, I am miserable. I live for myself and I'm not happy. I want this abundant life that Jesus promises and I want freedom from my old ways to have this new heart that's available in him. If you want this and you mean it, I just ask you to pray this with me right now. It says this, Father, here I am and you can say your name. I'm a sinner full of my own agenda. Worshipping my own desires. I'm selfish. Deserving of physical and spiritual death. Yet as I stand here, I've heard of Jesus' love and I've heard of his sacrifice for me. That he took what I deserved upon himself and out of love he defeated sin and the grave so that I could be saved. I ask forgiveness of my sin. I turn from it. I repent of it. I ask that you replace the selfishness and the sin that reigned in me with humility in your Holy Spirit. Give me a new heart. Give me the presence of your Spirit and dwelling in me in Jesus' name that I might be yours right now and forever. Amen. This morning, folks, as we respond in a time of response to what Jesus did on the cross for us and leaving the tomb empty that we might have life and life abundant, I want to ask you, to respond in one of three ways. Today, if you are here and you just prayed with me and you meant it, you were serious about that, could you let us know that, please? We just want to celebrate with you. You can email us at prayer@thefellowship.cc at and let us know so that we can help you know what the next steps as a follower of Jesus are. We want to walk with you in this and we want to celebrate you. It's the most important decision you could ever make. Today, we ask that you just let us know that you made that decision. Secondly, if you are already in Christ, you're His and you know it. But today, you've fallen in love with Him all over again as you've revisited the message of the cross and the gospel. Celebrate your freedom today as you come back to that place emotionally where you were when you first gave your life to Him and experience the freedom that you first felt at salvation. Maybe you want to grab the elements today somewhere around your house, the the matzo bread or the cracker or the the, the grape juice and the elements of communion and from That place, as an act of worship, you want to commemorate that you have life in Him. He said, when you come to my table, do this in remembrance of me. Today, observe the broken body and the blood that was shed that you might have life. It's just like that word, dihenu; It was enough for you and for me to be free. And lastly, the last point is this. If you're listening and simply need prayer today or would like to talk more, to know more, you want to talk further... You can also email us at prayerthefellowship.cc. At we would love to hear from you. We'd love to count it and uh, to talk to you and count it an honor to pray for you. So please email us. We would love to hear from you. Today we celebrate the empty tomb and we say Happy Easter. Let's continue to respond in worship as we worship our risen King.